But this kind of suffering is the kind of suffering that is the dark night where everything is dark. Right. And, um, and I have nothing in my faith formation to deal with this. I have nothing that I can tap into because we had asked for Jesus to take it away and he hadn't. And we'd asked for Jesus to help him through it. And now it seemed like he hadn't. Hello and welcome back to Deep in Christ. I'm your host, John Mark Grodi, here at the Coming Home Network International, bringing to you another discussion about this, our daily task of growing an imitation of and relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks again for being here with us. You know, again, this is a production of the Coming Home Network International. You know, we're a, a network of people who have come to embrace the church and the, the many treasures that Christ gives us through his church. And one of them is uh, this teaching on suffering, redemptive suffering. And that's what we're going to be talking about for a number of episodes. And I'm joined, a very special guest this time, my friend and colleague, Denise Bosser. Denise, how are you today? I am well. How are you? <laughs> very good. Thanks again for joining, for agreeing to do this series. Um, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Denise is a new a member of the team here at the Coming Home Network International. Uh, she's a convert to the church, uh, a pastor's kid, as well as a pastor's wife, right? I don't have that wrong, right? Yeah, both of those both, at some both point in your journey. Yes. yes. And her, she's told her story on the Journey Home program a couple times, um, but uh, our thought here was to do a little series on redemptive suffering. You know, it's Lent, and, and this is one of the themes that we're reflecting on during this penitential time. So reflecting on redemptive suffering, but also using uh, your story as kind of a, a vehicle for that. We'd talk through it a little bit because I know it's an important part of your story. But before we get to that, um, just tell the, the folks uh, a little bit about yourself, just a brief about yourself and about your position at the Coming Home Network. Okay. Well, I am a pastor's daughter. Um, my father is deceased now, but he was Wesleyan pastor. I was in middle school, and then he became a Presbyterian pastor for the rest of his adult life. Um, and then for a while, I was also married to a United Methodist minister, um, and, and that will probably come in a later um, episode. Um, I, so I went through an annulment, and that, of course, is a kind of suffering that we go through, um, those of us coming to the church. Um, and I was on the journey home a couple times, and um, so I, I came into the church in 2005. In, um, it was the feast of St. Maximilian Kolbe and the Eve mm, wow. Vigil of the Assumption. Um, and um, I've, I've done a lot of things, a lot of writing, uh, a lot of stuff I'm not going to get into, but... Um, Recently, I joined staff, and I am so excited to be part of the Coming Home Network because it has um, given me so much. Uh, basically, it helped birth me into the church, and so it is a joy to be on staff here. Uh, I, I wear two hats, really. One hat is helping in pastoral care with our what we call our secondaries, those who are not uh, pastors. Um, but uh, came into the church or are on their way into the church. 
and I, I help walk alongside them. And that is a great joy because uh, there were those that were part of the network that helped me in that same capacity. And the other hat I wear is publications, where I work with conversion stories and getting them prepared to go into our newsletter. And I work with the newsletter as well, the publication, um, and also those that are online. So people, you know, they can go to the website and they can look up hundreds of conversion stories and find someone and usually more than one um, person who is from their background, who speaks their language and can help build the bridge to help them uh, journey into the Catholic faith. Wonderful. Yeah, you're really, you're right, right at the core of what the Camino Network is about, both on the one hand, you know, walking with people on their, their own journeys and then working on those conversion stories. Um, you know, the concept of story is such an important one for the network uh, because uh, we do a little bit of poly- apologetics here, but that's not our main thing. Our main thing is sharing our stories and sharing in other people's stories. You know, we all have a conversion story that we're in the midst of. Um, that's that's just the, the nature of our life, and we, we have a particular insight into that as Christians. You know, it's in reflecting on our own story, you know, we're b- back on what has happened to us, that we see both God's faithfulness as well as the consequences, you know, of of original sin, of our own sin. Um, and so, yeah, story is so important for us here. In, in terms of our conversation today, you know, a lot of times the best way to understand some of the theological concepts of the church is precisely in how we wrestled through it in our story. And I think the redemptive suffering is probably one of the best examples of that because um, on the one hand, the church has a beautiful teaching on this. We've got, you know, the the great writings of St. Teresa, of St. John of the Cross, and many others, uh, which you'll talk a little bit about. Um, it's a great treasure, and, and we highly recommend that people read them. But even when you do, there's some sense in which you, you, you only kind of discover the real richness of it in your experience, you know, or in walking through that someone else's experience. And so, again, I'm, I'm going to invite you to to t- tell us a little bit of your story today, Denise, or at least begin that. We'll, we'll go over this over the course of a few episodes. And what we're going to see is a little bit of how this is fleshed out, you know, the, this concept of redemptive suffering, of suffering with Christ and seeing the meaning he gives to our suffering. Uh, we're going to see that fleshed out a little bit in your story. So I'll, I'll step back and you can kind of start us with your story. Well, you know what? I thought maybe the very first thing I would do is tell um, just this little story um, that I saw on social media on Facebook just a few days ago. It seemed like it really fits perfectly. There was this um, this mother, John Mark, who is taking her very young son into Stations of the Cross, and he had hurt his finger, and he was crying, and she was, I think, trying to console him and get him ready to go into Stations of the Cross, and so she said, we'll offer it up. And this young boy looked up at her, at his mother, and just with, just like, he was appalled. And he said, no, that will make Jesus suffer even more. And, um, the last thing that she, she put in her post is we need to do better at helping, um, little ones understand this idea of offering it up. And I thought, you know, we, we need to maybe do better for all of us. Um, and hopefully that's what we're going to be doing here together. Um, so, yes, uh, suffering was the the question that I had that prompted my journey into the church. Um, 
we, uh, as Protestants, we had really two things that we could um, do when we were suffering, and one, and and then we both Protestants and Catholics agree on these two things, and that is, you can ask Jesus to take your suffering away. Um, and he may or may not do that. And if he doesn't do that, the other prayer is, Lord, help me to suffer well. Help me to be able to endure this suffering. And both of those are ideas that are Protestant as well as Catholic. Um, and, and I had cousins who were um, charismatic, but of the, the prosperity teaching, do you know what I mean by that, John Mario? Like there was like you can name it yeah. and claim it. Yeah. And so if you right. had suffering, you could ask um, Jesus to take it away, and he was he was beholden to do that. Uh, almost like you had Jesus wrapped around your finger, and you could you could say what you wanted. I remember going to um, my aunt's funeral. She had cancer, and she had um, kicked it once, and then um, it came back around again, and she passed away from cancer. And I remember at her funeral, um, their pastor saying, "Well." The devil's gonna have to pay for what he did to Ruth. And, and I remember thinking, you know, that, that doesn't really make sense. And the idea of prosperity teaching and name it and claim it, you know, that wouldn't make sense for someone in Calcutta, India, you know, that where there's so much suffering. Um, so it almost seemed, and I was already putting together, it seemed like an Americanized, um, idea of, of religion and who God is. Um, that we could kind of almost command God to do things for us. And I was talking with um, Kenny on staff, Kenny Burchard, and he said, and I didn't know this, um, he said that the Anabaptists have um, like one little branch that believes that God has nothing to do with uh, suffering because he has nothing to do with violence or things that are violent. Um, and, and he was talking about, you know, like if someone like lost a baby, um, and they went to their pastor and said, you know, I'm kind of mad at God or God let this happen. The pastor would say, no, God was not in that at all. He was nowhere in that. And I remember talking with Kenny and saying, you know, Kenny, that just almost takes away the, um, omnipotence of God, that he can't be um, in that kind of suffering, that he's just like ghosted us or something. And, um, you know, that takes away the, the idea of free will and original sin and all those things that we know God has permitted. Um, but I think when I came into the church, one of the things I was realizing is that there's there's a difference between God's perfect will and God's permissive will. Um, and his permissive will permits things to happen um, because he can bring about a greater good out of those things that happen. Um, and so, but I, I hadn't worked through that. So I'm going to back up and I'm going to sure. talk about a little bit about in my childhood where the question of suffering first comes up and then how God used um, my father's suffering to bring me into the church. Uh, and um, one of the things I think that's really important, and we see this with people who are on their journeys and their conversion stories, is God gets our attention with things we love. And for me, it was my father. 
uh, I had a very deep connection to him, and we we had a lot of deep theological talks. He was a Protestant minister. I don't know if I mentioned that. And um, and also our gifts and talents, and for me it was uh, literature. So I have a master's degree in, in literature. But let me back up just a little bit. I remember when I was in um, fifth grade, I had a set of tonsils that were just awful, and they kept landing me in the hospital. And the tonsils and um, tonsillitis would cause me to have a secondary illness of some kind, and uh, sometimes it would be like pneumonia or whatever. And I remember being in the hospital. It was a very small hospital in northern Iowa, and um, I think the Sisters of Mercy ran it because there was this really awesome nurse who, uh, she called me Sunshine, and so I loved her. Uh, um, and it really was probably the only personal impact I had by a, by a religious sister. Anyhow, um, I was in the hospital, and my uh, room was right across the hall from the, the nursery window. And so as I started to feel better and I could get up, uh, I would walk across the hall and look at the babies in the nursery window. And I remember looking at one baby in particular, and I still remember her name. It was written on her crib, and was, her name was April. And I remember looking at her, and I thought about her mother and her mother's suffering, her laboring, literally being in labor to bring this baby into the world. And I thought, you know, that is a suffering that is just, that's great, because at the end of it, there's something wonderful, amazing that happens. You have a baby, but my suffering um, that I have with these tonsils, just it's worthless. There's nothing. You get nothing from it. Um, and I, so I think God even then was giving me a moment of grace um, in fifth grade to start to think about suffering and could there be something good that came from suffering um, besides the suffering of being in, in labor. Um, and so, you know, I can jump forward then many years. Um, my father had been uh, diagnosed with a lot of neurological disorders, uh, and he suffered quite terribly, John Mark, from those. And he'd had these disorders for about seven years, and he we knew that they weren't going to take his life, but we also knew that he would become progressively more and more debilitated. And um, and he did. I mean, he was he he was in a lot of pain, and eventually he had to step away from pastoral ministry. And um, it was it was the fall of two thousand three, and he had um, he had uh, discs in his back that had ruptured, and he had to have back surgery. And so he went in for back surgery. And when he came out, he was doing pretty well. And they said, well, the next two weeks will be really good for you. You'll continue to feel better and better. But that's not what happened. He actually um, became worse and worse. And um, we didn't understand this. And I'm like, well, do physical therapy. So he was trying to do physical therapy, and he was in terrible pain. Um and he was even on just at that point they were giving you know people op opioids right and left so he was on some significant pain medicine he was still in this horrible situation um, and my mom was struggling too because she had a position where she had a lot of 
meetings in the evenings and she couldn't be with dad and um, insurance wouldn't pay to have someone come in and, and take care of him. So they went to a doctor's appointment and you're going to start to see that the the suffering is going to ratchet up higher and higher. And I had a front row seat because we lived in the same town and I would help take care of dad. In fact, he would come over one night a week and spend the night when my mom was in meetings. Um, and I was homeschooling my daughter who was 15 at that time and she would help as well. And I also had, um, a daughter who was like four at the time. So we would try to help as much as we could. So anyway, my mom took my dad in to see the doctor and she was saying how, you know, this was difficult, um, because she, she couldn't get someone to come in. She would have to pay out of pocket and how, how hard that would be. Um, and the doctor said, well, I, I, I can't do anything to help you, you know, unless he has, um, unless he has like a mental health issue, unless he's suicidal. I, I can't help take, you know, get you the insurance to cover it. So, um, well, my mom said, well, he did say that if he had a gun and a bullet, he'd put himself out of his misery. And it's true. My dad was feeling very depressed at this time because of years and years of a chronic illness and now um, an acute one. And so the doctor said, well, we could put him in a psych ward. And that was really, my mom sort of, um, she, she said, okay, because it was, she was, I guess her back was against the wall with taking care of my dad and, and the cost. And she started to go to her evening meeting, and she called me on the phone, and she said, Denise, I need you to uh, drive your dad over to um, St. Elizabeth's and have him um, sign himself into the psych ward. And I remember, this came out of the blue to me, so I remember mm -hmm. saying to my mom, I can't do that. I cannot do that. I cannot go and take my dad and um, ha you know, be with him as he does this. And my mom said, well, your dad wants it. You know, mom knew that I would do whatever dad said. I mean, we had a really close relationship. And so I said, well, I have to ask him that. So I called my dad, and he said yes. But I think he said yes because he was trying to help mom out and um, knew, you know, that this was a complication for her. So, Jean-Marc, I drove my father to St. Elizabeth's, and... Um, and that was really difficult. It was really difficult. He signed himself in. They promised that um, they would work not only in getting his medicine, you know, for uh, being depressed worked out, but that they would work with him on um, on his pain. So what they did actually was they took all of his pain medicine away, and they focused on. Um, well, and they took all of his medicine for depression away to try to then start from scratch. And he was in there for 10 days, and I went every day but one, and that's when my brother visited, uh, came down from Chicago to visit. And it was like visiting Job. It was horrible. It was horrible. Um, my dad was in a wheelchair. He couldn't. Um, he was not mobile. He was slumped over. Um so far over that I couldn't see his face. He wouldn't talk to us. Um, he wouldn't talk to me. And um, 
this was like taking my heart and just ripping it out of my chest to see him go through this. It was terrible. And um, I remember even thinking this is like Job because my mom came one day when I was there and um, and he dad had to go to the bathroom, so I went over and stood um, and looked out the window of his bedroom, or of his room. And mom threw back the covers to help him um, I think with a, a bedpan or something. And he, he had been in his own filth that, um, they hadn't been cleaning him. And if you remember, I started by just a few weeks earlier, he'd had, um, he'd had back surgery. So he had this wound, this fresh wound from surgery on his back. And now he had feces on it. And I remember staring at the window and thinking, it's like Job. It says that he was on the um, the dung heap, which probably translates closer to like um, um, what do you call it, where you you have all of the like the peelings from your bananas and stuff you put aside to like compost. Compost. Thank you. Yeah. So it probably translates more to the, like the compost heap. But I can remember thinking, oh, the dung hill is like dad is. It's, he's like Job. And um, after 10 days, they moved him to another floor for physical therapy. There's going to be a lot of tears with this. I'm sorry. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so um, they they moved him to another floor, and I, would, I continued to go visit him, and he would have physical therapy. And so I would watch as they tried to have him walk with a walker, and do these things, and he would cry out and groan in such terrible pain. And um, they're like, you know, you had your back surgery. We figured out your medicine for depression. Um, we can't put you on that heavy a dose of um, fentanyl patches like you were on before. Um, so he felt kind of um, like tricked because they took all of his pain medicine away and they hadn't really replaced it with anything that was helping. And finally, he was uh, able to go home and my mom took him in for a follow-up appointment. And John Mark, it turned out that at some point my father had fractured his back. And post-surgery, he had fractured his back and he was being put through physical therapy with a fractured back that they didn't know he had. Um, and also he had a staph infection, which was really no surprise to us because of the poor care around his wound from his surgery. But there was one um, medical condition that they hadn't diagnosed and they didn't diagnose, and that is that he had um, a massive blood clot. And so we'd gone through the whole fall, and now we were at, um, we were in December. And he passed away on December 28th from um, a pulmonary embolism where a piece of that uh, blood clot broke off and went to his lungs. And, and he died instantly. Um, I'd like to back up a little bit because there are some things that we learn that I would learn um, as I was having all these graces that led me into the church post my father's death. Um, and I, I want to... I want to talk about some of these things. So some of the things that I saw him go through is that he 
he would cry out, and he had this just anguished um, language that he used. That is the language of those who suffer. And I remember standing at his bedside in his home, and um, <laughs> imagine this with your your father, John Mark. It's so hard to hear these words. My dad said, um, "Where's faith? I'm such a fake." And I remember this no just coming up and out. No, that's not possible because this, for all practical purposes, this man is my priest and my pope. He is my spiritual guide and my spiritual help and my strength and my rock. And he is also my father. And here he is saying that um, he's a fake. And I, I, I'm no, Dad. You have helped people um, on their own faith journeys. You have stood at bedside of people who are dying. You have never. I've never seen you be fake. Um, as your daughter, I know legitimately you wear the faith well. But this kind of suffering is the kind of suffering that is the dark night where everything is dark. Right. And um, and I have nothing in my faith formation to deal with this. I have nothing that I can tap into because we had asked for Jesus to take it away, and he hadn't. And we had asked for Jesus to help him through it, and now it seemed like he hadn't because he's saying, I'm a fake. Where's faith? <clears throat> and then... As he approached the December, uh, his death in December, things shifted and changed, and he was on another plane. He was still with us, but he had a peace that he hadn't had before. Hmm. And um, I think, John Mark, this will be of interest to you. I um, remember going and visiting him towards the end, and he said that he'd had a dream, and he'd asked Jesus um, why he'd suffered as he had, why it had happened. And that was part of, is if dad could just know why, that this was part of God's plan, um, part of his permissive will, then he would be okay with it. And um, and I said, well, what did, what did Jesus say in your dream? And he said, he gave me a name. And that was it. But that was, it was it. And you could see that he was just this relief that there, this name was the reason. Um, and my daughter that was there too, the 15 year old. And, and he said, I woke up and I wrote the name on a post it note. And so he made my 15 year old look through his entire room. And dad said, Oh no, she threw it away, meaning my mom. So he's like, Look through the trash. So he went through um, the trash, hmm. or she went through the trash, and she couldn't find it. And um, he said, I, so we were like, well, can you remember it? What do you, can you remember the name? And he said, I know the first name was Evelyn, and the last name, I'm not quite sure, but I think it was Brodi. No. That was not it. I said, was it Brody? Because that's a fairly common last name. He said, no, no. In fact, he was kind of angry 
irritated that I had pronounced it so terribly. He said, no, it's like Brodi, but it's not Brodi. So for those that are watching, it's important to <laughs> note that after my father died, the first book that started this process was a book by Evelyn Underhill. And I just coincidentally happened upon this book. Of course, Lit was my major, so I was reading a sequence of books. And this book uh, was called Mysticism. And I never would have picked up that book. But um, another series that I was reading um, would put a quote. You know, have you ever read a book where they have quotes yeah. like under the chapter title? And this one was a quote. It was a fiction series, but the quote was by uh, a real woman. And the quote was very, I thought was just a, an excellent quote. So I went and found her book next, and it was um, Evelyn Underhill's Mysticism. And I got to one chapter in her book that was called Dark Night of the Soul. And as I'm reading that chapter, I realized that she has uh, taken the title from a Catholic saint. And she has borrowed her ideas from this Catholic saint. And as an English major, I knew if you found out that you were reading a secondary source, that the, the thing to do is to go and find the primary source, not, you know, not to waste your time with a secondary source. So, um, that's just research and scholarship. That's what you do. So I decided I would go and find this Saint John of the Cross who wrote Dark Night of the Soul. And um, as I read this book, I realized a few things. I realized that um, the Lord had not abandoned my father because when one suffers in this way, it may seem like you're abandoned by Christ, but you are actually closer to him than you've ever been before. But you cannot see him, though he is sitting right next to you. Um, you can't see him because the room is so dark. And that it is not because he doesn't love you, but, but he has this tremendous love for you and wants to commune with you as you suffer. He is the suffering Lord, and he enters into our suffering and is made present there in a very intimate bond. Um, and that made sense to me. Um, John of the Cross also talks about that there's a language that the one who suffers speaks uh, that we who are not suffering but watching it can't understand and can't translate, um, but that they speak, the one suffering speaks with mm -hmm. Christ and Christ with that one, and that that is their, their sort of love language. And that made sense to me because I, I saw my dad go from just being completely distraught, absolutely depressed, and yes, maybe even slightly suicidal, I've, although I think that was used to, you know, to secure some kind of um, medical help for him. But as I was reading Dark Night of the Soul, um, I started to get the theology of suffering that was lacking in my own faith formation. And uh, I realized that he had a spiritual companion in St. Teresa of Avila. And so I went to her books next. Um, it was not to help me with suffering, but um, 
our Lord was taking me deeper into the Carmelite saints so that I would be attracted to the faith that birthed their uh, spirituality. And it was in the middle of her book that I realized I want to be Catholic. Um, This was within five, six months of my father's death. So God was working very quickly. Yeah. And this, what you were discovering there in the saints was very, very different than your own theological background. You were kind of coming at that with a theology that didn't make much sense of what you were experiencing, right? Yeah. And, you know, our Lord used my love for my father Mm -hmm. to put the question in my head. I know God's not broken. And so that must mean that my theology is incomplete, that my theology on this topic of suffering is not complete. Um, and then he used a series of books, which is my, my field, to, to help me understand. And I've talked with um, sisters, religious sisters at the um, Pauline Bookstore, Daughters of, of St. Paul, uh, who have said, this is the book, this is the premier book on this topic, and I just stumbled upon it within five months of dad's dad's death. And so that takes yeah. me to the summer. Okay, so dad died in 2003 in December, and this is the spring of 2004. So this is um, that I was reading these books. Middle of the summer of 2004, back when you could still like click through channels, um, I was clicking <laughs> through channels, and I happened upon uh, Journey Home. And... The bottom of it said, at the bottom of, at the, of the screen said, Third Order Carmelite, uh, Mary Beth Kremsky. So she was the, the guest on the journey home that day. And she was a Carmelite. And I remember thinking, and I think a lot of people listening will understand what I mean by this. I remember thinking, what? Carmelites, weren't they like 500 years ago? Um, because <laughs> right. it was, you know, as Protestants, we were used to new, um, apostolates, if you will, lasting for about 40 years. And then we would move on to something else because it was always like, what's the newest, greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit, right? right. And um, so um, I, I couldn't believe there was a Carmelite who still existed that I could, like living, breathing, I could write. And so I wrote the show and you, um, you sent my letter to her and we... Um, she sent me one letter in August. Now, I'm going to back up just briefly and say, okay, remember the name? The name yeah. my father had that Jesus gave him in a dream as the reason for his journey through the suffering. started with Evelyn, and the first book I read was Evelyn Underhill. And then the last one was not Brodi, but something like it. And here I'd happened upon... And I didn't put this together till later. I had happened upon Marcus Grody's journey home. Mm -hmm. And I eventually realized that it wasn't one person, but it was a like bookend beginning end. And the journey home then became this, I, I jumped into this whole watching the journey home, listening to pastors who were like my father, who um, who were able to put the pieces together. And they spoke a language, too, where it's like, this is the language of conversion. This is what I knew. This is 
what I believed, what I loved from my own faith tradition. And this is how I made the journey into the church. So week after week, I would watch the show. Um, that began the whole, my whole journey of, um, trying to understand how other yeah. pastors came in. That's amazing. You know, a couple of things come to mind. And that's really, you know, your story is really incredible. I know there's more to it that we'll, that we'll get to, but mm-hmm. um, one of the things that comes to mind is just how how important the, a theology of suffering is uh, because we tend to think of suffering, we tend to think of it as a kind of a provisional theology, like, well, maybe I'll have to deal with that and then I'll need some explanation for it. And then even I think we who have the church's great treasure of of the theology and the teaching the spirituality on suffering it, it, ca- it catches us out of nowhere right when it finally comes to us when it's finally our turn to wrestle with that mystery we're generally not prepared for it and so you know having that worked out or having some experience of it some learning about it is important but also you know the it's so important both for when we experience suffer- suffering which is going to happen it's part of life but also in the lives of others. I mean, that's, maybe it's a toss-up, you know, what's the most difficult suffering to experience is your own or that of someone you love, right? And so, but that also helps us to understand too, if we're trying to find the meaning of it, well, you know, we're suffering with Christ uh, and that has something to do with our entering into that mystery, entering into that purification, but also the example set for others. I mean, like the, the impact of, seeing that in your father and how it impacted you um it's really amazing and and you're on you're on the verge of this right because you're about to see i mean your wife will go through labor yeah and um and it's a cross to bear for the husband who watches you know the wife go through through labor um but I think that that is a really good metaphor for what it's like for us as Catholics because we really do believe that we're offering up our suffering for a very real spiritual reality that there is a blessing that comes to the the mystical body of Christ when we offer our suffering up, which is what we're going to get into more and more is unpacking it, unpacking it and um, and not letting any of our suffering go to waste. So you, you've brought us up into you know, the, the themes and the readings that, that led you up to the church. Did you want to go any further today? I, our thought was we're going to break this into a few episodes and, and a touch on the themes that come up, but is there any more of the story that you wanted to tell today? Thank you for asking me that. There, there is just yeah. one more little thing, that I'm, sure. I'm, and it's not little. It is not little at all. Yeah. And um, those coming into the church will understand this suffering. Uh, I was in RCIA and everything was going swimmingly. I was excited about everything, um, the papacy, even the Eucharist I hungered for. When we got to December, and um, it was a couple, it was December 12th, so it was a couple days after the, the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. And I was in class, and this was um, something that our RCIA leader decided he was going to cover in that class. And I remember saying, I, I can't, I can't believe that. I can't receive that. Um, to be honest, I think this was the one teaching, Catholic teaching that kept my father from becoming Catholic. So it was a big deal to me. 
And um, he laid out scripture and, um, you know, parallels of the prefigurements, and she's the Ark of the New Covenant, et cetera, et cetera. And it just was not getting through at all. And he said, okay, go home and make a petition to Mary, if you will, um, to show you who she is. So I did. I went home. I didn't have a problem with that, but I just didn't think she would ever, I didn't think she would ever respond. And she would ever, she didn't even know I existed. She's in heaven somewhere, and she doesn't even know that I exist. Um, so it's going to be a, a colossal waste of time, but I'll do it. And, um, so I went home and I wrote a petition for Mary to show me. And the reason this was so hugely important to me and very much um, a journey through suffering is because when you know that Jesus is the Eucharist and you long for him and you watch other people receive him week after week at Mass and you are making a spiritual communion but you cannot receive him and you don't know if you ever will and you know that you have to say yes to this dogma that you just of the Immaculate Conception that you just can't imagine being able to say yes to. Um, you've loved Christ your entire life, and here you may never be able to actually receive him, even as Catholics can go forward every Sunday, and, or daily even, and receive him. And so I made this petition for Mary to show me that she is the Immaculate Conception, but it couldn't be from anyone who knew me. I needed to know that this was Mary from Mary's lips to their ears, and that they can know no other way. And John Mark, the very next day, in the mail, I had a letter from the woman I had seen the previous summer on the journey home. Um, and she had sent one letter in August, and that was it. And I had no reason to think that this woman I'd seen on TV would, you know, send me another letter. And out of the blue, she sends this letter, and I get in the very next day, and I open it up, and it's two pages, single-space typed letter, but she had handwritten above the date. And the date was December the 8th, and lest this Protestant wouldn't know what that meant, um, Mary had had her handwrite Feast of the Immaculate Conception above the date. And I immediately knew that um, Mary is the mother of the church, that she is immaculately conceived, she is exactly who the church says she is, and that she is my mother. I have a spiritual mother in Mary. And that was, it took a while to unpack this amazing reality, but it yeah. is so um, much what we've been talking about, that if you're willing to go into it and, and turn into, it's kind of like, driving in the snow, you're supposed to drive into it. <laughs> and it's like, that just like counter everything you think of. Um, but if you turn into it, he, yeah. he does an amazing work um, because you're part of his body. You're part of his mystical right. body. And so, Mary's such yeah. a great example for that too, right? Because she, as the, kind of the, the first recipient of the grace of the cross, in her life and her being conceived without sin and, and living a life without sin, she gives us this preeminent example of, you know, a life of patience, a life, life of seeing her son suffering and persevering through that, you know, like, like you did with your father, of seeing that, um, uh, of having to wrestle with that mystery in someone that she loved. And so it, it, it makes sense that she comes around and, you know, shows you her motherhood in a particular way because she really does give us this image of well, what's on the other end of, of 
persevering through suffering, right. of patiently waiting for the answers. Well, it's it's the resurrection. It does. I, I it really does um, showcase this one suffering, and the one watching the suffering also suffers. We see Mary at the cross with Christ, um, and then you also see you know Easter Sunday. So um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's what we're working towards here. This this series is going to c- come out during Lent, and so we're all, you know, wrestling with our suffering and thinking through these things as we head toward Easter. So, well, thanks, get, thanks, Denise, for giving us you know, kind of this first glimpse and the kind of the first part of your story. We're going to continue next week with talking how the journey continues into the church and how these themes, yeah, you, know, you as you continue to ponder these themes in your heart, you know, there was there was more to learn about about the church's teaching on suffering, redemptive suffering. So so thank you, Denise, for sharing. Thank you. It's been great. We'll, we'll yeah. get into more next time. Sounds good. Yeah, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Deep in Christ. Again, I hope Denise's story has been uh, edifying to you. We're going to continue next week digging into it and digging into this topic of suffering. Again, I hope that you're having a good Lenten season, however you uh, practice that, whether you're a Catholic or whether you're somebody looking into the Catholic Church. You know, this is a great time for us to enter into this mystery and to reflect on our personal sin as well as general sin and the ways in which we're called to unite our, our suffering uh, with Christ uh, for for our for ourselves to allow Him to to purify all, us, but also to offer that up for others around us in the body of Christ. And so, again, if that's you in particular, if that's if you're someone who's looking into the Catholic Church, if you're on that journey, then this is your network. The Coming Home Network is your place. We're your people. Uh, we want to walk that journey with you. So check out chnetwork.org. A lot of great resources and videos and articles there, as well as a community of people like yourself making the journey, staying close to Christ as he leads us uh, deeper into the body of Christ, into his church. So, again, thank you for joining us for this episode of Deep in Christ. God bless you. We'll talk to you again next week.